When the rest of you open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, that's on page 739. Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah uh, 54, page 732. Sorry, 732 in the pew Bibles. And today we're going to be studying verses 9 and 10, but uh, just in order to give the larger context, let me read verses 1 through 10, even though our focus is verses 9 and 10. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more of the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch back your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is His name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I abandoned you. But with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, You are truly a great and awesome God. You are the God of all the earth. You are the God who made everything. And Lord, we praise You this morning that even though we have rebelled against You, rejected You, not listened to You, that in spite of that, You sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross so that we who were Your enemies could become Your sons and daughters. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning in prayer, not because we are worthy, not because we are anything, but because your righteousness covers us and your holiness granted to us on the cross gives us bold access into your presence. Lord, we think about this world that you have made and we see that it continues to spin out of control as it has ever since Adam and Eve fell in that beginning scene of the Bible. So, Lord, we live in a sinful and broken world. Lord, we pray for, continue to pray for your mercy upon the um, survivors of the tsunami in Southeast Asia. Lord, we pray that you would provide through these relief agencies the food and uh, medicine and water that these people need. Lord, help them rebuild their lives. Lord, may they find you in their grief. Lord, we pray for the country of Iraq as it nears the elections. And uh, what a historic moment this is. What a terrifying 
moment this is, we know the, the uh, will and, and the desires of these evil men whom we call insurgents, Lord. We, we pray that you would uh, thwart their efforts, that you would protect the innocent Iraqi people as they seek to participate in the free elections. And Lord, we pray for missions around the world, especially as we come to this missions conference, because we know that the people around the world need more than just a bowl of rice or a, uh, a medical kit or some water. More than anything else, even more than freedom and democracy, people need Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. And so we pray, Lord, that the message of the gospel would be put forward, that, that Christ's kingdom would advance, especially in places that are close to Christ, like Iran and North Korea and in other countries where the gospel is hindered by political opposition. Lord, we pray here for our own nation that you would bless our leaders, bless those in governing authority, bless our governor, bless our president, his cabinet, senators, congressmen. Lord, give them wisdom how to lead this nation. Lord, help them not to make politically motivated decisions, but decisions based upon righteousness and morality and truth. Lord, we pray for the South Shore of Boston that you would reach out and touch this area. Lord, for our friends and neighbors, our family members that we love who don't know Jesus, Lord, would you reach out and touch them and bring them to you. And I pray for South Shore Baptist Church. God, make us a holy church. Make us a church where we love each other. Teach us how to do that. We don't do that, Lord. We don't know how to love. Lord, teach us how to love the way you love. God, make us a praying church. Let this church be founded on your word. As we hear about churches in the area, Lord, that are right and left defecting from Orthodox Christianity. God, I pray that this church would be a pillar, an unmovable rock founded on Christ where people who are sick and tired of all of the, the, the relativism of the world can come here, Lord, and hear the truth of Christ taught boldly and courageously. Help us, Lord, not to shrink back from that. And God, I pray that uh, you would help our church with its growth needs. You know, Lord, our church is, is growing by your grace. And we pray, provide us, Lord, with the facility space we need. Provide us, Lord, with the staffing we need. Whatever it is, God, so that your name might go forward. Our desire is not to build some big edifice to ourselves. It is to glorify you. And we need these things as tools to do that. So, Lord, provide as you see fit. And now, Lord, as we open up the Bible and study it, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When uh, Christians undergo uh, trials and setbacks and traumas in their life, uh, it's very common for Christians, even strong Christians, to question God's love for them. Uh, when you have to go through a surgery or an extended illness or a crummy job or no job, or a rejection in a relationship, some kind of pain that way, uh, Christians will often begin to wonder, does God still love me? Is God still there? Has God forgotten about me? Am I being punished for something? Uh, is God angry with me? Has He turned His back on me completely? Am I underneath the judgment of God? Um, and, and that's what happens sometimes when we go through trials. But if I were to be honest, I would say that, that even more discouraging to my faith even more dampening to my sense of God's love for me than trials and traumas is the experience of sin in my own life as a Christian. That, to me, that's far more discouraging because, hey, the trials come and go. And one month they're here and then another couple months they're gone. But, man, I wake up every day and I still see the, the residual uh, darkness in my soul, the, the propensity towards sin and selfishness. You know, that, that's the kind of people we are. We're the kind of people who get in the car to go to church, and on the way there, 
you know, we're having a fight with someone in the car, yelling at the kids, you know, tense moment with your spouse. You get out of the car, you slam the door, and you walk into church and everyone's like, good morning. You're like, good morning. How are you? Oh, great. How's everything going? Wonderful, wonderful. Can't wait to praise the Lord, you know. And you know, we're the kind of people who sit in the church service and, and while we're worshiping God and singing songs, you know, we see an attractive person in the room and we kind of look at them and think about them. Or we see someone who's, you know, really well-dressed or, or someone, we, we judge them or we envy them, we have jealous thoughts, you know, while we're, while we're worshiping God. And then we leave the worship service all filled up with the Holy Spirit and five minutes later we let someone down the road have it with the Holy Spirit, you know? Like, uh, uh, like stupid, you know, and you're just yelling at people. <laughs> I am fully capable of preaching to you passionately about Jesus and meaning it and being sincere and two hours later go home and be inconsiderate to my wife. You know, I can do that. I do that <laughs> sometimes. And, and that's just the regular day-to-day stuff, let alone sometimes when we, we really stub our toe big and we really blow it and we just are shown to be imperfect and sinful. And, and when I do those kinds of things, you know, I just wonder sometimes, like, is God sick of me yet? Does He still love me? You know, I've been a Christian now. I've been following Jesus now for almost 20 years. And I still make rookie mistakes. And I'm like, you know, what's up with that? God's got to be tired of me now. He, I mean, he couldn't forgive me yet again. Again, 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 again. How many times is He going to keep forgiving me? And even if He does forgive me, I mean, He certainly couldn't use me anymore. I, I have to be past the point of usefulness to God. You know, at some point, is God going to vote me off the island of salvation? Is God going to say, you know, Jeremy, I'm sorry, uh, I've invested a lot in you, but, you know, at some point, you just got to sell low, cut your losses, and, you, you know, that's it. You're done. Am I ever going to reach that point? Can you lose your salvation? Can you, if you're genuinely born again, saved child of God, biblically a Christian, can God take that away from you? Is it possible to lose that by just being such a, you know, a miserable Christian, a miserable husband, wife, a miserable father, mother, a miserable son or daughter? Is it possible? And into our doubts and failures and sins, self-questioning, God speaks these tremendous, jaw-dropping words of comfort and assurance in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 9 and 10, where God says, To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. In the midst of our our fears and our doubts and our uh, self-questioning and our failures and our sins, God speaks to us Christians who are in this new covenant words of eternal comfort and peace that God loves us in Christ and that He has pledged Himself never, ever, ever to change that love for us, for those of us who are in Christ. Now let me, uh, before we dig into this text more, maybe I should just set a little background about when Isaiah wrote this and to whom he was writing, because it's always important to know the historical context of a passage before you just start pulling things out of it. So just to set the stage, 
Uh, Isaiah is writing specifically to the people of Israel who are in exile. That's where they are. Maybe you know a little bit of the history of Israel. Uh, God formed His people when Moses led them out of Egypt from underneath Pharaoh's bondage. They came out of Egypt where they were slaves. And God brought them into the desert. God gave them the Ten Commandments. That's when God made His covenant with them. God gave them the Ten Commandments. He took care of them in the desert. He brought them into the Promised Land. He gave them the Promised Land on a silver platter. He gave them everything they needed. God was always there for them, providing for them. And how did the people of God respond? Well, they broke God's laws. They worshipped other gods. They almost systematically, in every way that a people could turn away from God, turned away from God. You go down the list of the Ten Commandments and God's laws that Moses gave to them, and they kept breaking them. But God was patient. God was long-suffering. And year after year and generation after generation, He waited and He waited, and He would send His prophets the prophets would come, like Isaiah, and they would say, hey, guys, you've got to stop breaking God's laws. You've got to stop worshiping other gods. Come back, come back. And a few would respond, but the majority of the people said, eh, they rejected the prophets. They didn't listen. So after about 900 years of this, that's how patient God was. From the time they came out of Egypt until finally God said, it's over. We are done. And God divorces His people. He rejects His people. He... he threw them into judgment. And then the Babylonians come in 586 B.C. and they sweep over Judah and gobble it up. And they come to Jerusalem. They knock down the walls. They burn the city. They loot it, kill people. They burn down the temple of God. And so the city of God and the temple is now just a smoking you know, pile of, of burned bricks. That's all it is. And God's people are gone. And, and the people that are remained, they're taken into exile in Babylon. And so, where they used to be a nation, the people of God, now they have no people, no land, no Jerusalem, no temple, no nothing. They're just done. They're, they're obliterated as far as the people go. And that covenant under Moses is just gone and broken. So, a, a cheery picture, basically, uh, of where God's people are when Isaiah writes this. When Isaiah writes this, the people of God have been arrested, tried, convicted, condemned, incarcerated, and now they're serving a life sentence in Babylon. That's the grim situation. And into these, this grim situation, we get these amazing words. Verse 7, For a brief moment, God says, I abandoned you. Yeah, I judged you. I, I threw you away. I voted you off the island. But with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God is going to reverse His attitude toward the people of God. He's going to do something new. And then in verses 9 and 10, which is the verses I want to focus on, we see specifically that God is going to show His love by making a new covenant. That old covenant under Moses? Busted. They broke it. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And we know that this is the covenant that came through Christ. And so he says in verse 9, To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore, that's covenant language, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. Now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So when we Christians who are members of this new covenant that we just read about, this new covenant in Christ. When we Christians 
fail and sin and we doubt ourselves and we think, does God still love me? Is God still there for me? The answer comes from Isaiah 54. Yes, God still loves us. Yes, yes. Forever and ever and ever, yes. Because it is an eternal covenant of peace and and compassion that God promises through Christ. And as you look at verses 9 and 10, that jumps out, I think, as the primary point of these verses. You you always try to find the main point. The main point seems to be the eternal, unchangeable, forever and ever nature of this promise of love and mercy that God is making to us in Christ. It will not be broken. It cannot be changed, even by my failures as a Christian. God's covenant of peace is eternal in Christ. And to illustrate how eternal and uh, unshakable this covenant is, in verses 9 and 10, Isaiah gives us two metaphors. You see that? Two distinct images. In verse 9, he gives us a metaphor from the past. And in verse 10, he gives us a metaphor from the future. So, So he looks into the past and he looks into the future to show us how eternal this covenant is in Christ. And so when he looks into the past, what does he see? He sees the story of Noah. And that's where he looks first. Now you guys, you guys all know the story of Noah, don't you? Noah, the, uh, the guy in the ark and the flood and all that. Um, in fact, if you, if you could, put a little bookmark here in Isaiah 54. And let's just read a little bit of Noah's story. It's in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 6. I'm not going to read his whole story, but let's just take a peek at it and see how this relates to our text. So look at uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. We'll read the story of Noah. Genesis 6, 9, first book of the Bible there. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. And then that's the story. You know the story of Noah. Then he makes the ark. The animals come into the ark two by two. And, uh, you know, in fact, you know, there's little toys, kids' toys you can get. Like, my kids have this little ark, and the animals come in, and there's little Noah. And, of course, it's kind of twisted when you think about it, since the story of Noah is really a judgment story, that we have little toys <laughs> of the ark and the animals. Like, how come they don't come with little figures of the people, like, being drowned, like, ah, you know, I, I don't know, but if we're going to be accurate, but <laughs> just, I wonder these things. So, so, the, so the floods come, and God's. God sends His judgment and fury upon the earth and there's this global catastrophe. The whole world is, is destroyed in this watery, um, this watery judgment from God. And you know, what a, what a picture for the people of Israel in Isaiah's day. They too had been disobedient and they too had experienced a, a complete judgment as the Babylonians came in in a wave and totally destroyed everything about God's people. So there's this comparison going on here. Just as in Noah's day I judged the earth, so in your day I have judged Israel and have wiped them out completely. But the good news is that eventually 
The sun comes out, the water recedes, the ark comes on dry land, the door opens, all the animals go out and his family goes out. And it's kind of like the creation story part two. This is a new creation that takes place. God even says, be fruitful and multiply to them just as he did to Adam way back then. And then God makes the covenant that that we're reading about in Isaiah 54. So look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. And here's the covenant that God makes. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Genesis 9-8, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. And here's the, the essence of the covenant. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. God swears an oath that he will never destroy the earth with flood again. And then as the sign of the covenant, he puts the rainbow in the clouds so that whenever we see that rainbow, we're reminded that God has made this covenant promise that, that he's never going to flood the earth again the way he did back then. And so now go back to Isaiah 54. Here's the analogy. 54.9. It says, To me, God says, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. So God makes this absolute promise to His people in this new covenant. In this new covenant I'm going to make, which came through Christ, I will never again bring judgment upon my people. My people will never again be wiped out. There's not going to be another exile. There's not going to be another equivalent of God's people being wiped out by the Babylonians. In this new covenant, I promise eternal, unchanging blessing on my people and salvation. It's like back in Noah's day when I raised my hand and said, I'm not going to flood the earth again. And notice, what I notice too is that this promise is absolute in nature. There's there's nothing that can alter it. When you think about uh, the promise under Moses... It was very conditional in nature. That covenant was conditional. You read Moses' covenant, and it's always if-then. If you obey me, then I will bless you. If you disobey me, then I will curse you. And and so there's this, this strong conditional nature to the covenant under Moses. But when you come to the covenant in Jesus, the emphasis is not on the conditionality of it. It's upon the grace and the assurance and the security of it that this new covenant in Christ is not going to be revoked, and that even by my failures as a Christian, I can't break it. That God has a a pit bull-like love bite on me. That that He's bit onto me in love, and He is not going to let go no matter what I do. I'm in His hand, I'm there, and I can't get out. And, And you know, just like my kids can't pry my hand apart, so nothing, not even my own sin, can pry God's loving grip from being around me. It's that secure and eternal. Then in verse 10, he takes us from the past with Noah and he gives us one more illustration just to drive home how certain this loving covenant will be because boy, we need this kind of driving home in our thick skulls, don't we? It says in verse 10, now we look into the future. Though the mountains be shaken, though the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. What's more firm and certain than a mountain? What's more solid and unchanging than a a hill? You know, there's nothing. 
Uh, if you've ever been to Mount Washington or hiked the White Mountains, driven your car up to the top of Mount Washington and stood up there on that mountain, you know, think about how firm that is. Imagine what it would take for that mountain to be removed. You know, what, what kind of catastrophe, how, how many bulldozers would it take to get rid of Mount Washington? Or you, just, you can't even imagine it. Or, or those of you who uh, commute around Route 95, some of you do that and you head head to the west of Boston, you work out that way. You drive by Blue Hill every day, the Great Blue Hill. Next time you drive by it tomorrow morning, just look over at that hill and ask yourself, what would it take for that hill to just be swept away and there to be a big flat plain right there? What would that take? It almost seems impossible. I mean, you know it's not, but it seems impossible. And God is saying, my pledge to have mercy and compassion on you in this new covenant in Christ is more firm than the mountains themselves. You, you know, you could take a teaspoon and dig away at Mount Washington and you'd clear Mount Washington long before my love for you would ever end. That's how eternal this is. But, but I think there's something else going on in this passage. And I made reference to this. I think this is a future look. I don't think it's merely a, a metaphoric comparison to the mountains. But I think when he's talking about the mountains being shaken and hills removed, he's looking forward to the final judgment day. I think that's what's taking place. He's looked back at the judgment under Noah and now he's looking forward to the final, ultimate, total judgment day when the mountains actually will be removed and the whole earth dissolved before the wrath of God. And on that day, God says, even then my love for you will endure and you, my people, will be saved. It's a promise of salvation in the final judgment. And you know, where do I get that idea? Well, I think it's, if you look in Isaiah, this imagery of mountains and hills being removed and the earth being shaken is a picture of the final judgment. Uh, put your thumb here in Isaiah 54 again and turn over to Isaiah 24. Let me just show you where this language crops up. It crops up outside of Isaiah too, but I don't have time to look at all of the passages where the mountains falling down imagery is an image of judgment. If you look at Isaiah 24:19, here's a prophecy about the final judgment day. The earth is broken up. Isaiah 24:19, The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is, and then here's the same verb from Isaiah 54, thoroughly shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never to rise again. And that day the Lord will punish the powers in the heaven above and the kings on the earth below. The final judgment day when the earth is totters and is wiped out or look at just one more, Isaiah 51, 51 verse 6. Isaiah 51, 6. Another image of final judgment. It says, lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last Forever, my righteousness will never fail. So going back to Isaiah 54, uh, verse 10, when he's talking about the mountains being removed, I think this is a, a future look. Isaiah is using the, the telephoto power of his prophetic gifting and he sees to the very end of time, the time when Christ returns and when the nations are judged and when this whole world must stand before God. And as we stand before God, we have no hope in and of ourselves. I mean, we're done. We're toast. To stand before God and try to justify the way we've lived our lives 
And so God's fury will come upon the world and the world will be swept into hell and damnation except for those who are in the ark of Christ because His love is upon them and that love will even shield us from the fiery day of judgment where we deserve to be cast away but instead we'll be saved. Not because we're better than anyone else or smarter but simply because God has compassion on His people whom He's chosen and called. And so by the grace of God, this eternal love that He's put upon us will last us even through the judgment day into the future. So when I ask as a Christian, is God, is God done with me yet? Is God still ticked off of me? Does He still love me? The answer I get from Isaiah 54 is no! His love is eternal forever and ever and ever for those who are in Christ. Even through the final fiery day of judgment, which is almost too awful to speak of. Even then, God's love and mercy will endure and sustain me. You know what this made me think of in the New Testament? Romans chapter 8. Maybe maybe you're thinking of it too. Romans chapter 8. One more little passage. Let's turn to Romans 8. It's on page 1119. 1119, Romans 8. Romans 8 is kind of like the New Testament version of Isaiah 54. Romans chapter 8. Oh, this is just the the good stuff right here. This is like, you know when you order a Cinnabon, the the middle part? This is the middle part. Romans 8 is just so juicy and gooey. Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? Page 1119. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? If God has given us Christ, dude, I mean, what else is He going to hold back? He's given us the most precious thing there is, the blood of Christ. What else is He going to hold back? Because everything else is just chump change compared to Christ. He's given us everything. And so when we doubt God's love for us, when we wonder, does God still love me? We just have to look to the cross and say, Christ died for me. I know He loves me. Don't look at the the blood they keep drawing for you for lab tests. Don't look at the scar you got from surgery and say, I wonder if God loves me. No, no, no. Look at Christ's blood shed on the cross for you. Look at His scars. And let that be your answer. He loves me because Christ died for me. And every external circumstance in the world can be against me. And as I look into my heart, I can, maybe I just see darkness. But if I know that Christ died for me, I know that His love for me will endure despite who I am and despite the things that I've faced in my life. Then it goes on. Just ah, The gooeyness continues. Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, I will, because I do it all the time. (laughs) I'm always kicking myself. I'm always knocking myself, especially when I fail or or when I'm tempted. And I just think, what's wrong with me? You know, I went to seminary. This should be done. (laughs) I'm supposed to take care of that, right? No. So I bring charges against myself. But Paul challenges me. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who's going to bring charges against you, Jeremy? It's God who justifies. And then look at this line, verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. So let me get this straight. The judge on the final judgment day, the guy who's going to to destroy the world in holy judgment, is 
Jesus, who died for me. So I'm kind of set. <laughs> I have an inside track. I mean, the final judge is the guy who bled for me. So I'm safe. I'm secure. You know, how can I be judged then? But not only that, Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also, present tense, interceding for us. Right now, Jesus Christ is pleading for me. And every time I do something stupid, and every time I blow up excessively at my kids, and every time I have greedy thoughts about wanting to buy something or purchase something, and I'm like, oh, Christ is interceding for me. Christ is pleading for me. He's saying, Father, don't look at Jeremy. Look at me. Look at me. I died for him. Don't look at Jeremy. Look at me. And Christ's wounds intercede for me continually so that I am I'm secure. Which leads to verse 35. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? <laughs> Trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that includes my own failures as a Christian. It has to include that because everything is included in this passage. You know, this truth, if, if I can get this truth like past my ears and into my brain and let it somehow soak down in, which is the hard thing, getting the, letting these truths really get down in and change me, it, it will change you. It will change your Christian life um, in so many ways. And, you know, we could go on and on with the different applications and implications of this passage. But, but let me just suggest quickly two ways in which this truth can change our lives as Christians. First of all, it should give us a... A profound sense of assurance and comfort. I mean, that's kind of the obvious one. We should be comforted if we are in Christ. We have just found a bottomless ocean of eternal love and, and mercy toward us, and we should be comforted in that. And I say that because I think sometimes we aren't comforted. Obviously, I've talked about my own experiences in the Christian life, and, I, and some of you too you know, lack assurance of your salvation in Christ. And you need to understand, salvation in Christ and assurance of salvation are two different things. And you can have one and lack the other. You can be totally saved, born again, repented, believed in Jesus, totally a Christian, on your, secure in heaven, but not experience it, feel it, know it. It's possible to lack assurance. And sometimes at different times in our lives we lack assurance more than other times as Christians. And, and we doubt and we wonder. And I think these passages should give us that kind of assurance. I read about this cool story. I don't, I don't know why I think it's so cool, but... It, um, is told by Thomas Brooks. He's a, an old Puritan pastor, so it's a guy from the 17th century. In his book on Christian assurance, it's called Heaven on Earth. He tells the story of a Christian woman who lived in the time of King James I of England. And uh, King James, uh, or rather this woman was named Miss uh, Hannawood of Kent. And she was an elderly woman. She was a Christian woman. She believed in Christ. She professed Christ. She had a, a godly life. You saw the fruit of Christ in her life. So there's every reason to believe that she really was a believer. But for some reason, like everyone could see it except her. And she lacked assurance. And, and she lacked a sense of God's love for her. And you know, everyone's like, oh, come on. If anyone's truly saved, you are. But she just couldn't see it. And in fact, she, she would often cry out, I am damned, I am damned. She would just be so overwhelmed with, with her sense of, of guilt. And so one day a bunch of a group of little pastors went over to 
try to reason with her and they argued with her from the scriptures and tried to make reasons and it just didn't work, you know. No matter what they said, the woman's just like, I'm stuck. And, and so as they left, this is the weirdest little story. It says, when these gentlemen were about to depart, she called for a cup of wine for them, which being brought, she drank to one of them a glass of the wine and as soon as she had done, in an extreme passion, she threw the glass against the ground saying, as sure as this glass will break, so surely am I damned. And the glass rebounded from the ground <laughs> without any harm, which one of the ministers suddenly caught in his hand. And he said, Behold, a miracle from heaven to confute your unbelief. <laughs> Man, Puritan pastors are just awesome. <laughs> I'm going to start talking like that to you folks. <laughs> and then he said, Oh... Tempt God no more. Tempt God no more. And both the gentlewoman and all the company were mightily amazed at this strange incident and all glorified God for what was done. And the gentlewoman, by the grace and mercy of God, was delivered out of her hell of despair and was filled with such comfort and joy and lived and died in full peace and assurance. There's some of us who just are hurling the glass at the ground. God can't love me. And, and the glass hits Isaiah 54. And the glass hits Romans 8 and boing! It's back in our hand. God says, no. I, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, that's the if, you are secure in His love and His mercy and His compassion. And stop fighting it. Let, let Isaiah 54 and Romans 8 confute your unbelief. Let it... Let it bring you peace and assurance that you lack. Meditate on God's Word. Assurance of salvation is something you've you got to wrestle with. You have to, you have to search for it and dig for it, and God will give that gift to those who seek it. Which leads to the second application, and then I'll close with this point, that as we grow in assurance of Christ's love for us as Christians, the eternal, unchangeable, unbreakable nature of this love for us, that should propel us toward obedience and holiness of life. This is very important because I, I don't want us to think that you know all this stuff about God's love for us is just kind of pat us on the back and we just continue to, to be failures and we just, God's are like, it's okay. No, no, no. This should propel us toward holiness and obedience. God's love for us is the power for holy living. That's so important because so many times we try to generate holiness and obedience in our lives through other means. We, we look to you know, guilt. A lot of times we, we use guilt in our lives to sort of propel us to, to do it or you know, resolutions, perseverance, perfectionism. I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to do it right this time. And so we try harder and it doesn't work and never works because that can't fuel long-term obedience. What, what is it that can propel and motivate and energize long-term obedience and holiness? And the only answer is God's love for us in Christ. As I begin to receive Christ's love for me and recognize what it is, and that initiates love back toward Him, and I grow in my love for Christ, it, it makes me want to obey Him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's what should propel us, is God's love for us. And so many times we fail in the Christian life because we're motivated by other things besides the love of God for us. Instead of soaking in the gospel and understanding the magnitude of Jesus' sacrifice to me and letting that just captivate my heart with awe and wonder and out of that growing in holiness, I try to just tough it out and be holy. It doesn't work. 
And as Christ's love for me fills up my heart, it just pushes out the love of other things. The reason I sin, bottom line, is that I love sin. Let's be honest. That's why you sinned. It wasn't your parents' fault. It wasn't your circumstances' fault. It wasn't someone else's fault. It's because you love sin. You love sin more than God. That's why you sinned. That's why I sinned. Because I love sin more than God. So the antidote is to love God more than sin. And as I let my heart be captivated with love for God, His love for me, which produces my love for Him, and that dynamic starts flowing, it just pushes out my love for sin. I remember uh, a speaker, I was at a preaching conference this fall, and the speaker told an illustration that I thought just perfectly captured this dynamic. He says that he had a vacation home, it's kind of a rustic lodge, and they don't have utilities to it, so they use this generator and some kind of fuel. I, I don't know anything about these things. I don't know if it was like gas or propane or you know, plutonium or whatever it is that fueled this place. Who knows? But, but, but he says that in the, the winter, they have to winterize it and they empty out the tank. But in the spring, they fill it up with fuel. And, and as the fuel fills up, they have to open up a little valve on the top of the tank to push the air out because it's full of air. And so as the fuel comes in, the air has to go somewhere so it kind of pushes the air out. And he said, that's a picture of as God's love for me, his eternal love for me in Christ, and my love for him fills me up, it just pushes out my love for sin. Because when, when I'm filled up with love for Him, you know, I don't have room for the love of the world. When the world's offering me a Ritz cracker of sin, and God's offering me a five-course meal at the Ritz-Carlton, and I begin to understand that, and I start to see how awesome God is, it's like, you know, I, I don't want the Ritz cracker. I mean, who wants that? Give me what God has. And it's that love for God that gives us power as Christians. Power to overcome the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of Christian living and nothing else. Only the gospel will give you power for an obedient and holy life. It's like my old friend Thomas Brooks again said. It's on the back of your sermon notes. I thought he put it well. He said that knowledge, in other words, the assurance of our salvation, that knowledge at the bottom on the back, that knowledge that accompanies salvation is a world-despising, a world-crucifying, and a world-contemning knowledge. It makes a man have low, poor, mean thoughts of the world. It makes a man slight it and trample upon it as a thing of no value. That divine light that accompanies salvation makes a man to look upon the world as mixes as mutable as but for moment. It makes a man look upon the world as a liar, as a deceiver, as a flatterer, as a murderer, and as a witch that hath bewitched the souls of thousands to their eternal overthrow by her golden proffers. Therefore, let no knowledge satisfy thee, but that which lifts thee above the world, that which weans thee from the world, that which makes the world a footstool. Praise team, would you come and Lead us in a closing song.